book of Hebrews. Um, it's been thus far a, a good couple of weeks. We're just a, a couple of weeks in, um, but already just personally really enjoying my time of study, my time of reading, and um, I, just an encouragement, again, for those of you uh, who are with us each week, be reading, read ahead, familiarize yourself with the text, give your, give your own heart to meditation on truth in your time of prayer. Allow Hebrews just to kind of be a part of your um, meditation and personal spiritual growth. And I think we'll find that as we do that, um, these mornings have even more continuity from one to the next because the text has been in our hearts, the truth has been in our hearts. So I'm enjoying that myself personally. Uh, This morning we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. Rick began it last week. He started with the first half and actually I'm going to stay in chapter 2 this morning. And I'm going to read now Hebrews 2. Um, Verses 9, which we read a little bit of that last week, but I'm going to start at verse 9, and and I'm going to finish through the rest of the chapter. So if you are at home with us and you're watching on the stream, we'll go ahead and put the uh, scripture up. I'm reading from the ESV, and so here's the word of God. This is Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But we see him, this is speaking of Jesus, but we see him for for who, a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, though, excuse me, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to hold the word of God in our hands to study it, to meditate upon it. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, which interacts with truth and and helps us to apprehend and for it to take root in our hearts. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that as we give ourselves to this time of studying your word, Lord, that by your spirit you would do that very thing. Plant deeply roots of truth within our hearts, Lord, that we might be firm uh, and, 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 and so... Surely planted trees, Lord, along streams of living water, that we would bear great fruit, and Lord, that this church would continue to be all that you have called her and created her to be, Lord. 
And so this morning, we align our hearts and our minds with your will, with your truth. And Lord, we give you the freedom, and we ask you in this moment to change us, Lord, to correct us, to mature us, to bring us along in grace as you are so wonderful and faithful to do. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Hebrews 2, just before I jump right into the text, I want to ask you to take a quick journey with me, if you will, forward into Hebrews as a means of laying the foundation for what I want to say this morning. The illustrious Hebrews chapter 12, which we know and we have read so well. Hebrews chapter 12, it begins with the writer making a statement in verse 2 that we're so familiar with calling the reader to look to Jesus, whom he describes as the author or the founder, as the ESV says, the founder and the finisher of our faith. And it's fitting then this morning, I would say, that this next chapter or this portion of chapter two that we're looking at marks the beginning of what I would say is the writer's collective thoughts, dealing with the first part of that all-encompassing nature the beginning and the end, the faithful nature of Jesus the Christ, both the founder and the finisher. And so Hebrews 2 is going to concentrate this morning on the beginning of that equation as Jesus Christ, the founder. And I would say I love this verse in Hebrews chapter 12 too, and I look forward to when we make it to chapter 12 and we can teach it more fully. But I just felt it's so fitting because this morning what I want to speak on is that Jesus Christ is the founder of our salvation. And in fact, if you read from the ESV, my Bible actually has that as the heading of the portion of text that I just read. The founder of our salvation. And so I want to speak on that this morning. But the verse in Hebrews chapter 12 is one that we've probably undoubtedly gone to many times over in the past on occasions where we're needing to be reminded of the faithfulness of God for our lives. And that he, what he begins, he will most certainly complete, right? As Paul tells us in Philippians. And it's interesting, however, that I would, as I was thinking about this this week, that the comfort that we often find from those words, that Jesus Christ is the, both the founder and the finisher, or the author and the perfecter. The comfort that we often find, I would say, is usually in the second half of that equation. That our comfort comes from the fact, again, that he will most surely finish that which he begins. But what I wanna say to you guys this morning is that more more significantly and more importantly, I believe, is actually the first part of that equation that it begins with Jesus the Christ, that it originates from who he is. And it's from that place that then, of course, he will finish that which he begins. And so it is this idea, this truth, that Jesus Christ is the founder of our salvation that we will look at this morning. And as I just said a moment ago, the author and the perfecter translation, that's what the the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, translates Hebrews 12.2 as He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And in the Greek, when you look at the ESV, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word, I don't know Greek, shame on me, but I'll just leave that up to you to figure out for yourself. But I'll say this, when we look at the word that's used in the Greek, 
for the word founder or the word author, what we find is it's the root of, of the words that we use as archetype or architect. It originates from Jesus himself. What is the significance of a founder? When we think about this, a founder is somebody who establishes something, right? A founder is someone who is the originator of something new, something new. On our earthly context for founder, we probably can often go to men like Steve Jobs or individuals like you know, Bill, Bill Gates, people who have founded things, or the, if you're a Sacramentan, you might think of the big four, if you're familiar with the big four, the, the Crocker, the, I can't even think of who the four are, the St- Stanford, the Crocker, right, the big four, we'll just call them the big four, of the, of the Union Pacific Railroad, right, they're founders, we think of what they've accomplished, we think of the newness of what they instituted, the significance of what they have instituted. And this is what the point of the writer of Hebrews is getting at. He's identifying here in chapter 2 that through Jesus Christ, something new has been established. Something new has been founded by Jesus the Christ. And I would just say, think of this. The letter being written to the Jewish Christians so many years ago who were so well-versed and steeped in old covenant understanding, the significance of, of what Jesus did, of this truth, that he has done something that is new, and not only new, but far supersedes, as we've said the last couple of weeks, that it supersedes that which was done previously. Probably what just a mind-blowing moment that would have been having sat and had someone reading the letter of Hebrews to you for the first time, just going, you know, mind-blowing tilt. But for us, when we think of the founders, unlike the earthly founders, this is a very logical conclusion, of course, Jesus not being from this earth in origin. In fact, he has no origin. He has always been. But not being of the earth, that which he establishes has no earthly origins either. He used the means of the earthly man of the incarnation of Jesus, but its inception, its purpose, its conception has always been. This is what Jesus was purposed to do in the heart of God, was to establish something new. And my hope today for us, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, is that we would find just this shoring in our own hearts, this mooring in a time when it's so easy to find ourselves unmoored, of the core principles of our Christian faith, the newness of the foundation of what God has done through Jesus the Christ. In chapters one, having established the supremacy of Christ over all things, the overall authority of Jesus the Christ in chapter one, now the writer moves on in chapter two that as that overall authority, as that supreme authority, chosen son, chosen vessel of the father's heart. Now this is the work that he begins to establish that is new in chapter two. And I was thinking about this week, it's almost like if this was a resume, chapter one was kind of like, hi, I'm Jesus. This is what my purpose is. I'm the you know, supreme being of all things. Um, I'm looking to add value to people's lives. 
by bringing salvation and, and um, freeing people of sin. And then he moves in, and it's like in chapter 2 is kind of what he's done. Well, I see here, you know, from like 30 to 33 AD, you were uh, an itinerant miracle worker and speaker, right? So I was kind of thinking about it like in the context of almost like a resume, you know, and then, and then they're looking at, well, there's like three days where there's a gap in your uh, resume here. Can you tell me what happened right there, right? We see that when you know that when you, if you've sat for a, a resume, you're always looking for the gaps, right, in, in between people's employment. But, it, so, but just to put it like kind of, you know, in, in a funny, but yet, you know, maybe a ap- applicable way, um, it's kind of like a resume is what we've got here. And so Jesus Christ, the founding of salvation, the whole of our text today, I want to say this, can be summed up in one word. I'm going to sum up the entirety of chapter 2, verses 9 through 18 in one word, and I'm going to use that this morning, and then I want to unpack it again, and I just want to strengthen our core this morning. And that word is this, it's identification. Identification can sum up what I just read. Jesus, listen to this. This is the statement I want to make to you this morning. Jesus identified with us so that we can identify with him. Jesus identified with us so that we can identify with him by grace through faith. That is the summation of what we have read in chapter two. How did he identify with us? That's what I wanna look at this morning. There's a, there's a formula that I wanna unpack here that is laid out in this chapter two, and it's this formula of him and then us, of him and then us in this, in this form of identifying with us, him and then us. Firstly, in chapter two, verse nine, he identified with us in our humanity. He identified with us in our humanity so that in verse 11, we can identify with him in nature. He identified with us in humanity so that we can identify with him in nature. Secondly, he identified with us as family. Verses 11 and verses 13, we see this identification as brothers and as father so that we can identify with him as verse 12 and 13 says, sons and daughters. He identifies with us as family so that we can identify with him as family. Thirdly, he identified with us in our sin, verse 17, so that we can identify with him in glory, verse 10. Fourthly, he identified with us in suffering and in temptation, verse 18, and it says in the same, so that we can identify with him in as overcomers. So those four things, nature, adoption, righteousness, or the word he uses is propitiation, which we'll look at together, nature, adoption, righteousness, and perseverance, nature, adoption, righteousness, and perseverance. The four identifiers here of Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 18. If in his living, in his death, and in his resurrection, he touched these areas for humanity, isn't it logical then that we should expect in our experience a radical paradigm shift in our living as well. Shouldn't we expect it? 
If this is true, if he did in fact, as, as I'm proposing this morning, as I have extracted from the scripture, that he identifies with these areas of our lives, and as I have said that we in turn, as brothers and sisters, as the faithful of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we expect then the result would be that it touches, it affects practically, it affects experientially aspects of our life in each of these areas, our nature, our identification as sons and daughters and, of, and children of the Lord Most High, the righteousness, our salvation, and our ability to continue and to persevere. There's effects of this for our life, and this is what I want to look at still this morning. Here is the point. Through Jesus Christ, God founded for humanity an entirely new way to be alive. This is what we speak of when we talk about new creation. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you've heard us use the language of new creation. We extract that, of course, from Paul's language in Corinthians, which, which I'll refer to in a moment. But it's this idea, you guys, that Jesus Christ, that God in Jesus started new for humanity. And New Testament is ripe with language of him being the second Adam, of being the firstborn among many brothers, of being the first fruit by which so many more would follow after. This is the language that's used. This is the picture that is painted for us of New Testament Christianity. And if this is true, then brothers and sisters, what we should experience is entirely different than what we have known outside of Jesus the Christ. Can we agree with that basic assertion? If we can, good, let's continue moving forward then. I was thinking this morning as I was preparing and as I used the word kind of core principles, what I'm presenting this morning is nothing necessarily Maybe the language I'm using might be a little bit different than what you've heard in the past, but these principles are not necessarily new. In fact, these are foundational principles of the Christian faith. But I was thinking, you know, I have, um, I've injured my back this last week, and I'm in like a tremendous amount of pain at various times. And I was thinking, you know what it happens because I don't have a strong core. And the reality is, is I'm not this physical specimen of, you know, health and fitness, but I've, I've, I have hurt my back, and it's bothering me at these various times and like random moments. And I was thinking, you know why? It's because my core isn't strong. Your core is such a vital piece to your back health. It's like this here affects everything in your body. And now my back hurting affects everything else, you know? So the necessity to strengthen our core this morning, there is my analogy for you, okay? It's, it's a vital importance that we don't realize how many other things are connected to the spiritual core of our life. How many things are affected, not even just in terms of alignment, but also in terms of health and vitality for our life. So I'm hoping to strengthen us today in these things. So I want to look at each one of those four identifiers. Again, nature, adoption, righteousness, and perseverance. So the first being the nature. Verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. What a absolutely profound statement. Meditate upon that just for a moment. And if you 
can't quite grasp it, highlight it in your Bible, underline it, write it down in your notes, and come back to it this week and ask the Lord to reveal to you this idea. This is a crucial truth to the Christian life, that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of one source. Let me say this, we must not forget in our identification or in the identification that it was not simply Jesus with humanity. If we only understand it that he identifies with us, then what happens is we miss the whole second half, the second part of the equation, which is that in turn, we identify with him. That is where this new creation life comes into play is our identification through the regeneration of our hearts, through grace by faith that is made possible through Jesus Christ, we can identify with him. And if we fail in that part of what it means to identify, of what it means that in that what I'm saying is that our nature, the understanding of the practical application of our nature being changed and made new, if we miss that, then what happens is we miss all the blessings we miss all the, the, the reality of life that we are to now live in as being those who are heirs of Christ Jesus, who are children of the promise of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's a two-part equation. It's not just the incarnation. It's what the incarnation made possible for those who would follow after him. Through Jesus Christ, our inherent characteristics, our essential qualities were regenerated. And this is where Paul would say in 2 Corinthians that the old has passed, this, this, this text that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. And he says, following that statement, that the old has passed away, and then I love it, he says, behold, the new has come. The old has passed away, now take look recognize, apprehend for yourself, stop for a moment and realize that the new has come. Here Paul in 2 Corinthians uses a word to describe that which is unprecedented, uncommon or novel in its newness. Not novel, novel. The world has not seen the likes of this nature of life before Jesus Christ. But now through Jesus, the father of many sons, we bear his likeness, we bear his characteristics that we might bring glory to him simply, if nothing else, by the outward witness of our lives, by the visible, tangible existence of our lives, we can speak and witness of this new life in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that just as we have borne the image of the, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is us identifying with Jesus. Make no mistake, do not hear what I'm not saying. We cannot do it outside of Christ. Again, it's made possible by his identification with us. See, the importance of this I don't think can be understated, you guys. Because this is where it begins, this idea of the newness of nature. It all begins here. If we simply believe that our faith has somehow added on to our previous life, 
right? If we just see it as an addendum, even in really, really practically when we work through the minutia of that statement, if we see the expression on a Sunday morning of the gathering of the saints as simply just something that we do, then we have missed and misunderstood what I'm saying this morning. See, we, we, we cannot, we cannot make the mistake of somehow just adding our faith or adding this onto what previously was. If we do, I believe that we have grossly misunderstood what Jesus has obtained for us, and I would say that we're actually failing to live in the abundance and the fullness of the Christian life. And this is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 9. When he, he speaks of the absurdity of this idea, when he tells his disciples that nobody places an old patch on an, excuse me, a new patch on an old garment. Or he uses the analogy as well of no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. This is what Jesus is speaking. The issue for Jesus is the incompatibility between the newness of the kingdom of God, between the newness of new creation life and the, and, and the old system and the old ways of man. The two are incompatible. They cannot be. Nobody would do it. It's just absurd to think that we could take this old way of thinking and somehow put alongside of it the newness of the Christian life. No, no. God began again through Jesus Christ. He began again through Jesus Christ. And you and I here, if we are in faith, are the many sons that he has brought to glory. And we know, of course, in the Greek, sons is often a gender neutral. It's sons and daughters, not gender neutral, but it's a both and. It's a, it's a <laughs> never mind. It's oh boy, starting a whole new theology right there. Oof. I, some of you woke up with that. You do what now? <laughs> it's, it's a both and. It's a, it's a him and hers, a he and she, a sons, a sons and daughters. So don't, don't, don't let that hang you up when you're reading the New Testament. Um, again, you can dig into the Greek a little bit and often see that there's other, other things. There's more to it. So we've received a new and better nature. We've received one that's been filled with grace, one that's been filled with strength, with peace, with love, with joy, with comfort, with hope. All of those are some of the benefits of what is ours, what is given to us, what's, what is appropriated into our life through Jesus Christ because of this new nature that he's given. So what is this nature? I was thinking about, there's one step further that I wanna quickly just get into. The, the English Study Bible, the ESB, has a translation of Hebrews 2.11 that says this, that this idea that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of one source. It says this more in a literal translation. Consecrating priest, okay, follow me for a moment. Consecrating priest and those who he consecrates are all of one stock. That's a, li a more literal translation. The new creation life, let, let me say this to you. The act of consecration in the Old Testament, which we know that the, the, the Jewish Christians absolutely understood the context of this. But what he's saying here in this word of sanctification is that's, that's used in Hebrews, and the ESV uses sanctification, the word is actually translated, can be, as consecration, okay? 
those who are consecrated. The Old Testament, the consecration was this picture of the process of purifying a person or an object for the service of God. Setting apart, purifying, making it ritually pure, and designating it unto the, sanctif- unto the service of God. This is what the writer of Hebrews means by those who are being sanctified, that we are of one source. We have been consecrated, you guys. This is the new nature. We have been made pure, and we'll see that in a moment when we look at propitiation. We have been made pure, we have been cleansed, we have been set apart, and we have been designated for the service of God. That is the purpose and the nature of new creation Christian living. That is why we have been given a new nature. And to miss that is to also grossly, I believe, misunderstand why we sit, why we, why we worship, why we even exist, why the church even exists. To misunderstand that, I believe, is to misunderstand our purpose. The new creation life of a Christian is a consecrated life. It's a life that's now lived for God, not simply in light of God, right? It's the purpose. God is the purpose by which we live. And it holds consistent with the truth of chapter one, that that ours is a life of service to the one who created all things, through whom the world was created, as chapter one tells us, and also by whom all things exist, as Hebrews also says to us in chapter one. Our new creation life is one that is designated to the glory, dedicated to the glories of Jesus Christ, of giving him glory with all that we have and all that we are. This is our new nature. So it begins, new nature. Secondly, adoption. That same verse, verse 11, the NASB translates Verse 11, as this, we are all from the Father, he says. This one source, this one source of verse 11 is the qualification for us to be called brothers and children of God, which is what Hebrews goes on to tell us. It's because we have the same nature It's because of Jesus' identification with us that then in turn we can be called brothers. We can be called sisters. We can be called children of God most high. It's the qualification for us. And then he goes on and he quotes from Psalms and he quotes from Isaiah and first from Psalm 22 and he he says that as coming from one father, we are then brothers. And then if we are brothers, then we are also children. John, the Gospel of John 1.12 says, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave what? The right. He gave the right to become children of God. The qualification has been met by Jesus' identification with us. The natural result then is that we are brothers and we are children. The matter of adoption whereby God makes us members of his family is such a powerful and special reality for the Christian life. And it's a twofold benefit. First, one of the benefits is that our adoption gives us the right to speak to God and to relate to him as father. It gives us the right, again, 
It gives us the right to speak to God and to relate to him as Father. Romans 8, verses 14 through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then what does Paul go on to say? And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As children, we call him Father. We know that we can go to him, that we can relate to him, that he relates to us as Father. The New Testament is also ripe with this comparison between slave and son. It's in the parables and it's in the writings of the New Testament authors, this comparison that one is a slave and one is a son. Boy, what a vast difference between the two. That's what Hebrews is, is also keying into here. The benefit of being a son, we don't have to go far to understand that in correlation to a slave. A slave has no right in the house. A slave has no right to inheritance. A slave has no say. A slave has no right to approach. But a son, which is what God has made us through Jesus, a son has every right. A son can go to the father. A son has right over that which will one day be his as an inheritance. A son knows that he has the love and the affection and the, and the care of his father. This is what Hebrews is saying here. Secondly, a second benefit. So the first, again, being is that we can come and we know that we have the right to speak to God and to relate to him as father. And secondly, professing him professing us as children and identifying himself with us as our father tells us, listen, explicitly, let there be no question in your mind that we are loved by him, that he knows you, that he hears you, that he cares for you, and that your needs are known by him. That is a benefit, that is a byproduct of us being called sons and daughters of the Father. He knows you, he loves you, he cares for you. And we know, of course, that as children, we know that as children how significant that is for them, for a child to know that they are loved by their parent. It affects every fiber of their being in how they're brought up and how they think of themselves and how they live their life. First John 3.1 says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And I love what he says, and so we are. It is definitive, you guys. There is no question today that if you have come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a son and daughter of God. And if you are a son and daughter, then you can go to your father. And you know your father hears you, and you know your father loves you, and you know your father knows your needs, and he knows your weaknesses. And he knows best how to care, and how to guide, how to lead, how to sustain, and how to provide for every bit of your life. Adoption is such a beautiful thing 
And J.I. Packer, which I don't know if you guys know, J.I. Packer just passed away. If you're not familiar with J.I. Packer, he's, he passed away at the age of 93. He's a wonderful, just a man in the faith, contributed hugely to our lives in terms of his writings and his thoughts. And one of his more popular books is called Knowing God. If you've not ever read it, buy it and read it. It's, it's a fantastic, encouraging read. But J.I. Packer, he died on Friday. But he says this in his book, Knowing God. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. And then listen to this language. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is even greater. Can you say amen? Boy, what a, just a, such an encouraging stabilizing truth. So often when I think we, we don't miss, but we go past the significance of adoption for our lives, the truth of adoption within our salvation. Meditate on it, brothers and sisters. Let your heart go there. I was just thinking too of the earthly analogy, those who are familiar with the adoption process or those maybe who yourselves have been adopted, the significance of the judge declaring in that moment that you are now the possession of someone new, that your parents now have committed to, to loving and to caring and to nurturing. And as J.I. Packer says, you're given a new name. You're brought into the family home. All of who you are is re-identified now, in theory at least. It's re-identified with this new family. That's what has happened with Jesus Christ for us. And I think that some of us just need to simply hear that today that you have been brought in, that you have been brought into the family of God, that you're loved and you're cared for. Thirdly, so the first, again, is nature. He identified with his nature so that we can identify with him in a new nature. Secondly, he identifies with us as father and as brother so that we can identify with him as brother, sister, son, and daughter. Thirdly, he identifies with us, and I use the word righteousness, but the word here is propitiation, and propitiation is a portion of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And let's, let me just give it to you here uh, as for what I have. Beginning in verse 9, towards the middle of verse 9, it says, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering death, because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then skip down into verse 14, about halfway through, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then if we skip again a few verses later in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, propitiation is the theological term. If you've not heard it before, which I'm, again, if you're a part of Capital City Church, I'm sure that you've heard it before. If you haven't, then I would question our ability to lead. No, I'm just kidding. Don't question our ability to lead. It's a, it's a, it's a theological term, propitiation is. It's a theological term for the truth that through Jesus' willing giving of himself through his willful submission to the Father on the cross, the just wrath of God, the just wrath, not just the wrath, the just 
wrath of God that was pointed towards us who were outside of Christ in our sinfulness, that that just wrath was appeased and made right. And not only was it appeased in the eyes of God, but that wrath was actually turned to favor. That is what propitiation means. The wrath of God is satisfied. And in that satisfaction now, we are beneficiaries of the favor of God. And we've spoken of this before when it talks about in the Old Testament of the shalom, this idea of shalom is not just peace as in the absence of conflict, but it's also, it's peace and added to it, it's rightness with God, it's, it's pleasure with God, it's favor with God. That is what is stated here, that he has become our propitiation through his once for all shedding of blood. See, this is our confidence each morning that we should, that should something bad happen to us throughout the day, it's not God punishing us or getting back at us because he's still angry for what we did. No, no, propitiation is our confidence each morning that not only are we outside of God's wrath, but we are inside of God's favor. Propitiation is part of Jesus' larger work of atonement or making our wrongs right with God, which provide us the ability to live each day knowing that we are satisfying and pleasing to God. That when he sees us, he sees his children, which he delights in. He doesn't see somebody who keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again, and he just wishes he could do this to you. No, no, he sees his child, right? Because we're sons and daughters. He reminds us that we are new in Christ Jesus, that we have been given through grace the ability to live a new life, and therefore when he sees us because of Jesus' once for all sacrifice, he sees us as his pleasure and as his delight. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but what? But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. This was a conciliatory effort. This was a one-sided effort. This was God towards humanity. This was God in love towards us, towards you, towards me. Like adoption, too, this is vitally important to our daily living because in it there's strength, right? There's joy. There's not fear and trembling. We're not wondering when, like, you know, the strong arm of the law is going to come around and smack us from around the corner. No, we wake up each day and we know that we are the pleasure of God, that we're the delight of God, that we are the righteousness of Christ. And when he sees you, man, he's happy with you. Does that mean that you're perfect still in, in the sinful nature that abides within us? No, it doesn't. Because scripture is ripe with the admonition to put to death, therefore, that which is earthly within you. We know that the sinful nature still wages war within our life. And the call is to be sanctified, to be continually transformed by grace from day to day, from day to day, by one degree of glory to the next, which is apportioned to us by the Spirit of God. We understand that that is the work of the Christian life. But that doesn't change the fact that God is still pleased with you, that God still loves you. Amen? 
I was thinking, what is, as a kid, what is one of the worst phrases you could hear out of your mother's mouth? Wait till your dad gets home. Your dad's going to deal with you when he gets home, right? And I'm sure I heard that in some form or another. I know at least, you know, a handful of times in my younger life, in my adolescent life. And I was thinking, what happens then? For the rest of the day, you're just kind of waiting, right? You're hunkered down in your room. I don't know about you guys. I actually have memories of waiting for my dad to come home to dole out some discipline. And you're like, you're hunkered down in your room. You know, you're just waiting. And then you, it's like 5 o'clock, you know, and it's like the door opens. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's coming. You know, it's about to happen. <laughs> but let me say this. But then what happens? When the discipline is administered, right, just like a good dose of medicine, when the discipline is administered, what happens as the child? They're brought into the, hopefully, into the loving arms of their parents. They're affirmed, they're confirmed as being a son, as being loved, as, as being an object of pleasure and affection. And what does the child do? The child doesn't continue to walk around the rest of the day waiting for dad, you know, to smack him a second time. My dad never smacked me, by the way, not like that. He might have wanted to, but he didn't. But, you, you know, you're not waiting for the, to be disciplined for a second time. No, you go on carefree. You've started new. This is, this is what propitiation is for us, you guys. We don't have to wonder, like I said, you know, whether we're going to get that, you know, discipline up the backside. No, it's like, no, God loves you. Now, are we disciplined? We are because God disciplines children because a parent disciplines those that he loves. But you don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking about like retribution, right? So the, the, the analogy that's been given many times by Rick in this room is that when he was younger, he would slam his finger in a car door and think that that was God punishing him for his sin. That's what we're talking about. That's not, that's not how God operates. God operates from a position of love and care. This is what propitiation feels like in the new creation life. It's relief, it's joy, it's peace, it's thankfulness, knowing that, 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 that we are God's pleasure and that we are God's delight. Psalm 147, 11 says this, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. This idea, that's, that is a, um, gosh, I wish I knew what the terminology was in, in, the, in grammar. My weaknesses really show up here from the front sometimes, don't they? Um, but my point is just to say, like, that's an active, ongoing, present tense. It's not just a one-time thing. It's like, no, no, God takes pleasure consistently and ongoingly in us as children, in us that, again, that he sees as the righteousness of Christ. Fourthly, perseverance, and I'm going to end with this and wrap it up here in the next few minutes. We come to the final of the four identifiers. The first, again, was our new nature that provides the framework, I would say, for the second and the third. The new nature is the context for all of it, all right? It's the, it's the vehicle for it. And then second comes our adoption, and as I said, um, uh, second, yeah, okay, what did I say? Our adoption was second, right? <laughs> Second was our adoption, and then was, came the righteousness and propitiation. And then finally, the, the last one is, is the part that we have as believers to walk out in faith. It's, it's the part that we get to co-labor with God in, not just 
in belief and in faith and application, but now how we actually live this life out and its perseverance. And he says this in, in verses 17 through 18, and I'll just read it once more. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, is the beginning of verse 17, in light of everything that has been said prior, therefore, this is the logical conclusion. This is the next step to the equation. He had to be made like his brothers, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, we must resist the temptation to read this verse and automatically discount its ability to encourage because of what we perceive to be an inconsistency in our thinking between Jesus being tempted and his ability to sin. I don't know about you, but if you're honest, if you've read this text before, there have been times where it's not really that encouraging to me because I, go, my, I find myself going, but yeah, but you were God, incarnate in flesh, enfleshed in a man. But here's the point in it. It isn't, listen, and I said, we have to resist the temptation because it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus could or could not sin. What matter is the point of what I have been making all along, and that is this, is that he has identified with us in a life characterized by temptation. That's the significance of that last statement in verse 18. It's the identification, it's that Jesus knows, it's that Jesus endured, it's that Jesus met that same opposition, and because of that, now again, in light of everything that I have said, we follow in those same faithful footsteps by the grace of God to be able to live a life that has been characterized through temptation, yet overcoming and perseverance. It isn't simply so that he can sympathize, which he can, but as with every aspect of his life on this earth, he did it typifying the nature of those who would come after him. That is why Jesus did it, to show us, to give us an example of what the Christian life looks like, what we can expect, and also what we can expect the result and the outcome to be. That is why it says to us that he was tempted, so that he can identify with us who are also being tempted. Romans 8 says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. There it is again, Jesus Christ, the first of many. Jesus Christ, the, the, the path maker, the wayfinder, the one who goes before, the one by whom, of whom we follow after. He went before us as an example of a victorious life that would characterize those who would come after. Listen, if you don't feel as though you are living victoriously, let me say this, Jesus has made a way for us to do so. And by the grace of God, he's provided the means for us to live as overcomers in this Christian life. Will we do it perfectly like he did? No, of course not. Just like we still need to deal with the sinful nature in our lives. 
We still battle this sinful nature. But listen, our hope lies in that the same spirit that empowered Jesus Christ empowers us today for the Christian life. We have been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not endure trials and temptations. He didn't only endure trials and temptations which are common to our normal life. And I would say this, but maybe even more significantly is the fact, and it's definitely more prominent as recorded within the Gospels where the temptations came time and time again for Jesus, that it was a temptation that was calling him to choose the easier and less costly way of life. That was Jesus' temptation, to choose the easier way. We remember Jesus is, Satan brings him up. Everything that he was presented with was the easier way to bypass the will of the Father. We draw from this, you guys, in that we too are called not only to endure trials that are common to this life, but we're called also to endure those temptations that would deter us from service unto the Father as consecrated vessels, to choose the easier way in life, to pick the way that's most convenient, that circumvents what God places before us. Therefore, Hebrews 12, just to land back where I started, two verses later after Hebrews 12, 2, in 12, 4, he says, consider him. So I would say to you guys this morning, therefore, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that what? You may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Consider him. As I said this morning, as we came in from Paul's word to the Ephesians, therefore stand, be strengthened in the Lord. Consider him, fix your eyes on Jesus, the both the finisher, but also the author. He, begins the, he, he finishes that which he begins, but that which he begins, you guys, is so significant because of its nature. So I pray for us this morning that we would just find encouragement in this, that we would find greater understanding and strength to continue to live in this time. I wanna pray, so would you pray with me just to close our morning together? Father, so much has been said And I ask, Lord, this morning that you would just kind of work through all the words to to bring about the truth, Lord. As I prayed in the beginning, that the truth of the word would take root in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we realize that we have such a long way to go in so many areas of our life. But Lord, the words that have been brought to us this morning, there's so much encouraging truth that, that is within it that is applicable for our lives in this moment. And Lord, we ask that you would now take this, Lord, and throughout this week, massage it into our hearts for the glory of your name. Conform us, Lord God, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the city and for the sake of our neighborhoods, Lord. We pray for your grace and strength to be obedient Christ followers. And we thank you ahead of time, Lord, for what you will do in the name of Jesus Christ, we say amen together.